Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, June 6th, 2021. Belated happy birthday to my cousin Gordon Granger, who turned 92 yesterday. That's pretty good. You remember Gordon? Yeah, I do. I don't know that many people 92. I do remember Gordon. And uh, he was named after Gordon Granger of Juneteenth fame. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting so, he has uh, his birthday now, too. Anyway, uh, moving right along here. Um, it's, a, it, it's been an exciting week. As always. Well, this is the... And Hasbon uh, is now a week old. Yes. Hazi, as we call him. And, you know, for a person who says very few words, he has dominated the conversation for the entire... Two weeks of his life. Uh, he's one week. Uh, of one his week. Life. Uh, it seems like a year, honestly. But uh, he's uh, he's acute, but he's a man of few words. I mean, we'll see how that situation develops. Right now, he's right. keeping his powder dry. Meanwhile, he makes his cousin seem huge by comparison. Seem huge he's, he's and like, elderly. Yes, like a teenager, like the monster that ate and, Cleveland. Uh, or she's not yeah. even a year old. So. Yeah, but uh, there's no comparison. Apparently, he, a lot happens those first few months. We can tell you, he's a cutie pie. Pie. Looks like his grandfather. Uh, all right. So there was, we sort of, a, a firestorm of sorts, uh, the last podcast, in, in kind of an unexpected way. I happened to mention casually, um, uh, after we were talking about the Birder story and we were quoting the, um, the Zerlins, Harry and Larry, in that connection, I mentioned casually that I'd been riding my bike and the fellow in front of me had spotted a turtle crossing the road and had gotten off his bicycle, moved the turtle to the other side. All right, cute story, no big deal. Not to the Zerlins. The Zerlins weighed in heavily on this. Apparently, this is a subject about which they know quite a bit. Uh, they have experience with this. Larry wrote that uh, in, the, in the Pine Barrens area, which is where Larry lives, I believe, will correct me if I'm wrong, diamondback terrapins cross the roads that run through the marshes in such numbers that driving can be a slalom event. Uh, well, that's, that's alarming when you think about it. Yes. Harry came in with one or two stories, uh, casting him in a heroic pose about, uh, regularly, <laughs> uh, getting out of his car and, uh, rescuing turtles, making sure to put them on the side of the road that they were shooting for, uh, so that they don't cross back. And apparently he did this once and uh, his friend in the car said to him that on the basis of that uh, task, he was going to heaven. So, uh, as I said, the heroic pose. So they had quite a bit to say about it. I think it. it's very important that you let the turtle go where he wants, he or she wants no to go. No question. Because apparently they will just turn around, uh, you know, if you choose, uh, you know, to put it... Well, this, this goes to my next point, yeah. which is, do these animals know where they're going? And apparently they do. And how do I know <laughs> that? Because there's an article in the Times, by total coincidence, this week, as if they were listening or reading. Well, that's another subject. They you know, they're read. not just out strolling around. What? No, 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 but no, my, my point, know. the New York Times, it's like they're reading my emails with Harry and Larry. That's, what's, that's what I'm getting at here. Oh, and they, okay. have, they have an article, apropos of nothing, unless they're reading the emails, how did the moose cross the road on the overpass, of course. And it is an article about how the uh, wildlife uh, authorities, the National Wildlife Federation, deals with animals crossing the road. Apparently, it's a thing. I had no idea. I thought this is a Harry and Larry thing. I wish it's it were not. a thing around here. Oh, I don't know that it is. Because we have uh, highways with the deer cross. Well, and you're right. In not disaster. every highway is covered, but 
First of all, let's explain what we're talking about. Apparently, uh, what uh, is considered a potential solution to a situation where you have uh, deer and elk and moose, particularly large animals that can cause big collisions with cars, you know, crossing highways. Uh, one solution that has been tried out is building an overpass over the road, just sort of a dirt overpass, uh, with the thought that perhaps the animals will take the overpass and not take the road and cause a disruption. That seems improbable. It does seem improbable. You know, don't, you, don't you think you'd have to like bait it with right, something right. and say yes, maybe it, you have some nice signs? See, well, what you do is you put up a sign that says like hole. it's like the old duck crossing sign, and you see yes. you say, "How do the ducks know that's where to cross?" Apparently, I don't, well, look, I don't know how that works. So I'm thinking to myself, this can't possibly work, and that's what they thought at the National Wildlife Federation, even though they well, spent millions of dollars right. to build these. So they build one apparently, as described in this article. Uh, in, in they described one in Utah, which was long and very unattractive and kind of difficult, like a dark uh, scene, and no animal would feel comfortable there. Uh, and they actually put a camera to monitor what would happen uh, following the building of this overpass. And and the person involved, a wildlife biologist named Nikki Frey with uh, Utah State, um, she said she was hoping maybe one or two animals would use this over the course of some months because it was terribly unattractive. Well, much to their surprise and delight, it became heavily trafficked almost immediately. A wide variety of animals were using it. Moose, deer, black bears, mountain lions, porcupines, and more. They were using it, according to Dr. Frey, on a daily basis. Um, so I'm going, Wow. Uh, those animals have a lot more on the ball than I thought if you give them a chance. Well, there's a little more to it. I guess animals have established migration patterns, and they're putting these overpasses where the migration patterns would suggest they want to cross. But even so, it's still impressive. But it's not just the overpasses which cast my interest. Which uh, Really? Yes. There are underpasses. Yes. Now, underpasses... Are more prevalent. Are more prevalent. Why? Because they're... they're easier and cheaper to build. Cheaper. They're cheaper. They cost just a few hundred thousand dollars. And the underpasses are just for, um, you know, ducks, uh, geese, salamanders. Uh, they, no, describe... they, have, they have all kinds of animals there. Amphibians. I, I could go on. Yeah. There's no. an alligator using one. There's there a is, panther using I, one. I, I don't really. First of all, the panther looks like it's an overpass. The, uh, the alligator, frankly, I don't see any animal hanging out with the alligator in the underpass. I mean, that's a whole different kind of issue. Uh, I would keep the alligators out of the underpass. That's me. But my point is Boy. that there's there are what's called amphibious underpasses. They describe one in Moncton, Vermont, um, and uh, apparently there. Are, and Harry pointed this Daniel, out too. Daniel, what? They're amphibious, not because they're for amphibians. Yeah. No. No. Because it's water and uh, uh, yes, uh, it could uh, be used for water. Well, whatever. Or land animals. Don't you think? Amphibian enthusiasts. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Salamanders and frogs. People interested in salamanders and frogs. Harry wrote about how there are people who are volunteers in New York and New Jersey who sometimes station themselves at certain points of roads and usher the animals across. Cross. And apparently that's been going on. And then on every once in a while, a car comes in, and just squishes a in, bunch in of Vermont them, which also. Is sad. Yeah. So Vermont is doing this. They're building more. Look, there are a lot of these things. There are, according to the paper, there are more than a thousand dedicated wildlife crossings in the U.S. today, up from just a few in the 80s. Well, there's amazing wildlife in the underpasses 
of Central Park. Is there? Oh, yeah. I've seen some very strange All right. Well, there. listen. Here's the best news that for people. That was a joke, Dan. That was what? a joke. You, oh. just, you just tromped right over my joke. I, I, and I'm having a serious conversation about this, and you're making light of it. I mean, it's... Uh, I'm not making light of it. It's a, it's a fun idea. This is, to me, is bigger the than the discovery of, of, of UFOs. And that they're helpful. Yeah. But look, here's the thing that makes, should make us all feel comfortable about this. All right? And that is that uh, there is, I think the, the figure is $340 million that's allocated to building these things in uh, the new uh, Biden plan. In other words, it has achieved the highest ranking among the things on the, on the national uh, screen. It is infrastructure. So there you go. As long as it's called infrastructure. I I, I, there's a couple of things I don't understand. Yeah. One is, why does it cost millions of dollars yeah. to build an overpass? Why millions? Well, it's three hundred fifty, three hundred fifty million of, dollars. Yeah, isn't it just sort of a bridge? I I think it's it's in the uh, you know the the fourteen thousand dollar federal toilet uh, way of doing things. I, that's the only guess I can make. And but the other it, thing is, and an important part of the article was that uh, the nature people yeah would like us to take more seriously how we're building the roads, disrupting nature's course or building the roads at all because they see the the roads are a wound the word wound is in the article yeah and they disrupt these migration patterns and uh, they think it would be a bad result if people take the attitude that gee as long as you build an overpass every once in a while right. you can put a road anywhere right. that would so be wrong good and there's bad yeah look it's, it's something i wasn't on to uh, maybe you were on. Now look at you. You're an expert. I'm all over this. I'm very excited about it. Well, okay. Would you what? help a snapping turtle cross? Well, road? I don't have to anymore. I don't have to. I would direct them to the nearest underpass. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not going to fool around with one of these things. Because I know that uh, Larry draws it, the line. That's not. That's at snapping, snapping turtles. Well, Larry, you know, can be a little bit. You know, I don't know what to say. You know, careful. But uh, listen, I, I wouldn't pick up a turtle under any circumstances between you and me. How careful? How careful is he? I don't... <laughs> he he roots for the Mets. This is a life-threatening uh, yeah, well, application. It is. It, it's more of a slow demise than uh, an actual uh, uh, emergency room event. And the um, speaking of the Mets, speaking of baseball, Mike Marshall died. Now you're going to say to me, who was Mike Marshall? Say that. That's what I'm counting on you. Who was Mike Marshall? Okay, you don't know who he is. And that's half the story. Mike Marshall was one of the most amazing baseball players ever. And it's not like he was in, played in 1908. He played in the 70s, okay? He played in what I'll call the modern era. And he was amazing, all right? How are the 70s part of the modern era? Oh, yeah. I'm counting on that. If you take 70s out of the modern era, I'm, I'm on the shelf, honey. I mean, I, I, the 70s are well, right in the middle. Oh, dear. I, I don't know. 70s are definitely in the modern era. I mean, the, the 40s. All right, all right. But Bo- here, along. Here's, the, here's the thing. Mike Marshall in 1974, all right, uh, pitched in 100. He's a relief pitcher. Pitched in 106 games. Okay, he pitched 208 innings as a relief pitcher in 106 games. Now, okay, let me give you a comparison about that, how insane that is. All right. When the Mets got Edwin Diaz off a fantastic year for the Seattle team a few years ago, he had a great, great season. All right. He appeared in 73 games, not 106 games. Okay. And. Uh, his innings pitched 
were 73. Mike Marshall pitched 208. Now, he had a lower ERA than Mike Marshall, and you might say he's a closer and Mike Marshall does something else. But the fact of the matter is, without going into too much detail, it's so much more valuable. You just look at the numbers. This guy pitched 208 innings. He was in almost every game. How valuable is a player like that? It's unbelievable. He went through one point in 1974 where he pitched in 13 games in a row. Townsend. You're laughing at me. I'm, I'm carrying. Listen to this. He pitched. I know it means something to you. This is, this is right up there with the, the overpass. He pitched, he pitched in 13 games in a row, and he pitched a total of 30 innings in the 13 games. I'm let me, happy let, for him. Let me put it I'm this way. I'm happy for if him. The Met, and he, by the way, won the Cy Young Award. He was the first relief pitcher to win the Cy Young Award. Um, if the Mets had a guy who could do what Mike Marshall did, he would be the most valuable player on the team. He would be more valuable than Jake DeGrom, who is great. He would certainly be more valuable than Pete Alonso. It would be an unbelievable help to the team if any time you can say, hey, can we get an inning and two for Mike Marshall? I mean, it's insane. And the question is, how come no one else does this? And how come he's not more celebrated? Well, you have to go through how he did it. And how he did it was, he was an expert in kinesiology, okay, which is the mechanics of bodily movement. He actually got a doctorate in uh, exercise physiology from Michigan State in 1978 while he was still pitching. He was a scientist who was a pitcher. And he, based on his scientific study, he figured out how to throw in such a way that he could throw effectively almost every day. So then the next question is... Why didn't he teach that to anyone else? Because, you know... Turns out, that's a good question. And why wasn't he, be, why didn't people just run up and make him more prominent? It turns out he was a difficult person. Okay? <laughs> and what, what do I mean by that? I mean by that, the, in, in the modern era, the definition of a difficult person is someone that the press doesn't like. So the Times says, during the 1974 World Series, Times sports columnist Dave Anderson wrote how Marshall had declined to provide more than perfunctory answers to reporters' post-game questions. Privately, uh, uh, Anderson noted many of uh, Marshall's teammates dislike his aloof, impersonal manner, but they tolerate it because of his durability and talent. He was not popular. And because he was not popular, he was not as celebrated. And because he's not as celebrated, there is not... 25 people studying at Michigan State right now trying to learn to be that pitcher. That's my theory. I mean, if I was pitching now, you know, that's what I'd be trying to do. Say, forget you can be another guy who throws 98 miles an hour. Who cares? If you can improve your durability on the basis of Mike Marshall's studies, why wouldn't you do that? But it was because he was considered an oddball in a sport that doesn't celebrate intellectual investigation. Well, but you're also saying he didn't like to talk to the press. Right. And uh, we just, uh, you can draw a parallel to some extent with Naomi Osaka. No, there's no comparison. It's never enough. It's never enough. No, there's no comparison. To just be good at what you do. No, no, no. You've got to be the full package. There, there, no, there's no you've comparison. You've got to play with the other kids there's no nicely. Comparison. You've got to play no comparison. with the press nicely. No, it's not even close. She's actually highly popular, okay? And you're talking about a completely different situation. The press likes her. That, 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 believe me, it's, it's, it's completely different. My point is, he is not as celebrated as he should be. And what he said 
They quoted here. He said, look, I was dismissed as a physical freak. I did things nobody had ever done. For me not to be considered the best relief pitcher in the history of baseball is silly. How's that? He sounds lovely. (laughs) He also had an, he threw a screwball, which is a a reverse curveball. It curves the Mm -hmm. other way. Mm -hmm. There is no one in the major leagues now who throws a a screwball except for one player, a fellow named Brent Honeywell Jr., who learned the pitch from his father. Who who, learned it from? Who's Mike Marshall's cousin. Oh, okay. All right, enough about Mike Marshall. Yes, indeed. I want to hear about art. Let's hear about art. I know you want to hear about art. Yes. A couple of little tidbits. A couple of articles in the New York Times. Yes. Um, One is about uh, Van Gogh. Well, it's not really about Van Gogh. It's about uh, somebody who knew Van Gogh in uh, the last uh, few days, weeks of his life, Mm -hmm. apparently. And uh, this starts with a fun story of uh, Catherine Matthews, who stopped by an antique shop, purchased a painting by E.W. Brooke for $45. She Googles the name and finds out uh, there's this guy, there's this Edmund Walpole Brooke who did uh, correspond with and spend time with... uh, um, Vincent Van Gogh in near the end of his life huh. when he was 24 and uh, so it's a painting it's a it's a painting of uh, some kind of uh, structure with a woman in uh, you know Japanese dress carrying a child and it's a watercolor it's not very big about 13 inches by 9 inches and this has caused a lot of excitement because some people uh, especially a scholar, uh, uh, Kodera, Professor Kodera in Osaka, um, were aware of this person, but no one has been able to find any of his art. He, uh, Edmund Brooke, was born in Australia. His father was a reporter for an English language uh, newspaper or publication in Osaka, not in Osaka, uh, Yokohama. And um, he grew up, so Brooke grew up in uh, Japan, and he became an artist. He, there are records of him uh, being in exhibitions in the Royal Academy in London, in the uh, 1891 Paris Salon. He had some solo shows in Paris, but nobody can find any of his paintings. There are even fairly recent records of his paintings being sold in uh, you know, various auctions, but nobody can find who bought them or where they are now. And, of course, you're very, very curious because you know, having been to the Van Gogh Museum mm-hmm. in Amsterdam, um, how fascinated by Asian art Van Gogh was, yeah. okay, and had a big influence on him. So it seems uh, something interesting to study. And Kodera has been hunting him down for years, finally found his... Um, uh, his uh, burial plot in a cemetery not far from where the professor lives uh, in uh, in the area of Osaka, um, but, you know, not finding much about his actual art. Now, he's mentioned in correspondence uh, by Van Gogh to his brother, and uh, he says, uh, you know, uh, his paintings are a little lifeless, and you don't see anything of Japan, uh, meaning, you know, 
the style, the art of Japan in his work, maybe that will come. So not very flattering uh, depiction, but uh, he is kind of a, um, a wonderful mystery, which may, to some extent, be solved. But, by the way, the professor also found a, um, a little tombstone in Yokohama where Brooke had lived earlier in his life, and he thinks that may have been uh, a tombstone uh, for his daughter, who may be actually the child depicted in the watercolor painting. Oh, but the painting is by Van Gogh. This, this no, no, no. Is... The painting is by E.W. Brooke. Okay. All right. And uh, the reason it's exciting is because he was acquainted with, he was this mystery figure in Van Gogh's life near the end. And Not when, a major figure. As a young guy, you said he was 24. He was 24 when he knew Van Gogh. I see. Yeah. All right. Well, and that's so what gives the painting cachet that so, he, he knew Van Gogh. What? That's yeah. what gives the painting. Yeah, it's not it's not uh, a life changing no. work of but art. It's not like the Mike Marshall story. But the yeah. the fun thing is, yeah. um, you know, now it will get some notoriety. Maybe yeah, we'll sure. find more of yeah. these paintings. Right. Um, I mean, he had a career during his lifetime, but I think he does uh, end up uh, pretty destitute, well, uh, according to the professor. Anyway, so moving right along. Also, a uh, follow up on. Um, a sculptor we were talking about a few weeks ago, uh, Constantino Nivola, who you remember there was a, um, uh, a housing project uh, in New York yeah. that had a bunch of cement horses. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Okay. Right. And uh, apparently the city came through and just sliced them all at the ankles and, you know, allegedly put them in storage. Well, they, we're hoping they come back yeah, because yeah. they were doing some project. So anyway, the, there's an article in the New York Times about uh, uh, Nivola's family trying to revive his uh, reputation, kind of resurrect uh, what we, um, you know, people's uh, understanding and appreciation of his work. He was not, um, he, he did sand casting. He, he cast... Uh, these works in wet sand, uh, which is, uh, you know, kind of a thing you do in like arts and crafts mm -hmm. and summer camp, uh, but uh, I think not that easily done on a large scale uh, in a um, sort of pro professional way. He, you know, um, he occupies kind of certain little niche, uh, knew a lot of... Uh, the artists of the period, uh, de Kooning, Jackson Pollock, Lee Krasner, but it uh, was of a different uh, style somewhat. Um, so anyway, there's a couple of exhibitions uh, happening on his work. Uh, one out in Cold Spring, New York, uh, called Sandscapes, that will be there through January. And there's also some works at Firestone Gallery in East Hampton. So if you want to know more about um, this uh, mid-century uh, sculptor, Constantino Nivola, go there. There's also a fun article by Jason Farrago in the New York Times about Bert Morissat, as we call her. The, um, one of the few uh, women, female, uh, impressionists uh, of the late 19th century. Yes. When I first read that, I thought, you know, she did impressions of people, but she doesn't. She's an impressionist painter, right? 
That's hilarious. Is that? Can we consider that a dad joke? No, no, no. It's, it's, uh, it's you, know, a, you know better than that. It's pretty funny. All right, actually. people forget you heard that. Forget right. you heard that. Um, anyway, I mentioned this. I'm not going to talk uh, a lot about uh, Barrett Morisot, although I'm sure you'd love it if I did. But the fun of it is, um, it's uh, in the digital edition of the New York Times. It's rather uh, cleverly um, crafted. Produced, yeah, right. and uh, Farago takes you through the painting, um, utilizing you know zooming, etc., uh, and uh, really takes you, as I said, takes you through the painting um, in a, a very uh, uh, explanatory way that I think is helpful and interesting and uh, accessible. Oh, she leans in. Maybe you'll enjoy it. It's it's actually a painting of her husband, mm-hmm. Eugène Manet, mm-hmm. um, in England. They're on a family vacation uh, in England um, on the Isle of Wight, and uh, one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons, I, you know, I'm going, I'm, I'm doing a bad thing here. I'm getting started talking about it, but I won't talk about it. Um, We'll save that for another time. Okay. But do note that her husband's name was Eugène Manet, the brother of oh. Edouard Manet. And she and Edouard were pretty close. Oh. Pretty close. You know, you always take it that level. In fact, they, they have, I think they have a big kerfuffle once when he decides to kind of um, touch up one of her paintings. He being... Which one? Which Manet? Edouard oh, Manet, the, the painter. The big one. Um, and uh, she gets a little pissed off. Yes. But anyway, so that is, again, The Impressionist Art of Seeing and Being Seen by Jason Farrago in the New York Times, worth seeing online, reading online. Okay, great. So um, there was an interview with Ted Chapin. Um Ted Chapin uh, is the son of Schuyler Chapin, who I happen to know, um, uh, and uh, an older man passed away about 10 years ago. He was um, the head of the um, New York uh, City Commission for the Arts for some time. So if you did work for nonprofit theaters, you would know Schuyler Chapin. Ted Chapin, through his father's connections, became the head of uh, the Rogers and Hammerstein office which means he's in head, he was in charge of the Rogers and Hammerstein catalog. And what that meant was, and he's been doing the job um, for some 20 years or so. Um, it was more than that. that was yeah, maybe it is. A zillion years. Maybe more than that. I could be, uh, you know, anyway, I don't think, I don't think the data's here. For a long time. Apparently what, what happens is this. The uh, Roger and Hammerstein, unlike um, a lot of uh, uh, songwriting uh, duos and po- persons who wrote musical theater, actually came to own a lot of their properties. Uh, in many cases, uh, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, you would get paid and you'd make a certain profit, but you wouldn't own the property. Cole Porter didn't necessarily own the shows. Roger and Hamstein had so much success. They after Is that a few because success- someone else financed them or they bought no, the rights? they bought the rights. They, after a few of them, they realized they were on solid footing. They could set it up so they would own the rights. Uh, and then they bought back the rights that they didn't have. Okay. So they ended up with rights. And of course, Rogers and Hamstein wrote all those great shows. So... This, you know, so they figured out these might have a life beyond right. that for and, that initial production, and they were clearly uh, right. So this is an incredible uh, cash cow, and the question is, how do you manage this? 
And uh, part of it is uh, quality. You don't want to have productions that are second rate that are going out there of a Rodgers and Hammerstein show. So you do supervise a little bit what's out there. And he, in the article, is somewhat critical of Yul Brenner doing uh, um, King and I to death in, in really second rate productions. That's an yeah. example of something yeah. that went awry. Uh, but uh, also you just had to be uh, somewhat, you know, clever about the timing of the various productions. And he's asked about what productions were considered um, uh, profitable, or not profitable, successful and whatnot, because you're always taking a chance. And he says, in some cases, we took a chance with folks and uh, it didn't work out. In some cases, it did. So he's uh, he's asked about his favorite, the, what, what he thought was the biggest, the most successful production that they put in terms of a revival of a Rodgers and Hammerstein show when he talks about South Pacific at Lincoln Center in 2008. And we saw that. And he thought that was great. And I thought it was okay. Uh, I didn't think it was great. The South Pacific. It was good. Yeah. It was a little leaden. What I thought was great was the 1992 production of Carousel, which yes. which he refers to in a sideway uh, manner. But uh, I thought that was fantastic. But what's interesting to me, too, is he asked what was a stinker. And you know what he identifies as a stinker? What? The Boys from Syracuse at Roundabout in 2002. And we saw that, too. And I thought that was good. I thought it was good, too. Yeah, I and thought it was real good. that uh, one song with Roberta Luker, right? Isn't that yeah, 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 yeah. Sing, Sing for yourself. For yeah, and maybe the, down the house. Yeah, the little the, the little twist there is that that's not Rogers and Hammerstein. That's Rogers and Hart. Yeah, although they own those things too. So that was a little bit odd. I mean, anyway, he does explain. Uh, I mean, there are some problems with the shows in terms of whether they're sufficiently up to date in terms of the way they deal with indigenous populations and the like, and they have to navigate that. That's certainly part of uh, what the landscape is. Um, and he's sort of more than willing to do that. And he's asked also, well, how do you, you know, is there an appetite for these shows? Can you really make money? He says, yeah, let me give an example. Sound of Music. Uh, you know, people would put it on once in a while. But when home video came in, bingo, uh, Sound of Music was catnip because people wanted to see it over and over. So he licensed a double video cassette and a single video cassette, then a DVD, then an improved DVD, then an enhanced DVD, blah, 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 blah. So there's money to be made. Um Anyway, it's kind of an interesting business to be in. Uh, obviously managed very well. And he does tell a story about Carousel. He says that when he attended the first preview of Carousel in London before it got to uh, Lincoln Center. The 1992. 19, 1992. A woman seated next to me in the box smiled and asked in a posh accent, Are you with the production? Which seemed to sum up the strange job I've had. Uh, only later did I realize it was Princess Margaret. <laughs> So there you go. Well, he also points out, I thought it was interesting, it starts out as a very small family business. Yeah. He's just doing this for right. you know, the family. It gets and now it's quite huge and it's owned by... Concord. Some, it's somebody else. Uh, yeah, a, a major... Huge conglomerate bought it. Yeah. All right. So uh, back to the classics. Yeah. Sorry. You know, um, uh, there's a... Review of a new Stephen Fry book, mm -hmm. Troy, The Greek Myths Reimagined. Okay, this is reviews from the Wall Street Journal. It's written by Moira Hodgson. And I just uh, say that because, um, you know, she writes a lot of things. I know her mostly from her writing about food. And she does these uh, reviews once in a while. And I just quote, I just pick that out because... 
She's not a classicist. She's not some. She's not a scholar. Right. Uh, and again, these books that Fry writes about mythology are extremely yeah. access- accessible and entertaining, and uh, you know can be read well, by she, she, anybody. She these lo- are fun. She loves the book. I mean, she uh, loves the book. We, we're familiar with mythos. This is the third in the series. I forget the second one is heroes. What's the second one? Heroes. Heroes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, um, he's a lively, elegant writer, a great storyteller, and his books are insightful and erudite with extensive glossaries and learned footnotes. And she says he has this great tone of voice, you know, um, that uh, he's very good at dialogue. Right. I just and she dialogue, quotes this yeah. one, go on, said Odysseus, daring to nudge Agamemnon in the ribs, marry Clytemnestra. What could possibly go wrong? And of course, she murders uh, her husband. Yeah. All right, so, but anyway, so um, this is again, I highly recommend Mythos. That uh, you know, where he starts yeah. from the beginning and tells you all the stories, and there, are, you know, so many great uh, scenes from that. And uh, you know, um, oh, I'll just read a few quotes from Fry. You don't need to know anything. To read this book. He's talking about mythos, the first one here. It starts with an empty universe. Certainly no classical education is called for. No knowledge of the difference between nectar and nymphs, satyrs and centaurs, fates and furies is required. There's not, absolutely nothing academic or intellectual about Greek mythology. It is addictive, entertaining, approachable, and astonishingly human yeah. and and i and i absolutely agree the you know the, that's why i love mythology they are great stories yeah. and um i remember when the kids were young and uh, they liked mythology yeah uh, well uh, you know uh, granger did anyway and and i uh, was in a parent teacher conference and his teacher said you know i noticed uh, granger really enjoys mythology she said I find many of the smarter kids do. Hmm. I mean, what a crock. How ridiculous is that? He liked mythology because we introduced him to mythology. Everybody would like mythology, hmm. would enjoy the... And, and I don't limit that to Greek. There are great uh, you know, stories from many, many cultures. Uh, and it's just, it's a matter of introducing, and that's why they survive. Then in the New York Times Magazine section, big article of a conversation with Mary Bird, uh, the, um, Is it Bird or Beard? Beard, sorry. (laughs) Still thinking, uh, anyway, um, Mary Beard, um, professor and uh, classic scholar, uh, over in England, talking to her about, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, a variety of subjects, including um, uh, the idea of people looking back at, say, the ancient Roman culture for hints on uh, how to behave or what not to do. Um, And uh, she says, you you see this a lot with uh, discussions of military uh, campaigns. Uh, The... um, Aggressive, she says, or do-gooding West has a disastrous campaign in the Middle East. And then people start to say, ooh, Romans always had trouble there. It looks frightfully learned to have that reaction. 
uh, as if it's rooting your distaste for that kind of military es escapade in terms of real history, when in fact it's using history to justify what you think anyway. Uh, which is really her point about most of this. Uh, you um, Again and again, you have people picking through history to just, uh, you know, justify their own views, not really, yeah. um, I don't know, uh, demonstrating any uh, examples, etc., or whatever. Um, people have always been extremely good at not seeing what they didn't want to see in the ancient world or using the ancient world to validate appalling stuff. Um, so uh, she, you know, um, she's very, you know, she, she's very sort of even-handed uh, at, um, you know, her, I guess, uh, the fascination with the ancient, especially Roman history. And I think that's because she just has such a full understanding even someone like me i mean i have an interest but i just know the headlines mm -hmm. i just know the cliches okay and uh she for example he, he asked her question about there's this you know great fascination with stoicism uh, at the moment uh, it's it's the cool philosophy apparently did you know this no no i didn't either and uh she, and she says that's ridiculous. They're just pulling out various uh, cliched uh, ideas from Marcus Aurelius. Um, they come with the rubber stamp of great antiquity because they were written by an emperor. An emperor, she says, who was about as brutal a mass at massacring the enemy as Julius Caesar. But we revere him because he's the bearded philosopher. Okay, so she takes with a grain of salt... Uh, our modern uh, opinions and worships of these various characters, okay. which makes me kind of think twice. But I just mention this because there's a lot of you know talk of like the white supremacists using um, ancient civilization really? as a justification for their philosophies. Right. Well, I'm not familiar with that, but I'm certainly not familiar with the Stoicism well, it, either. It, it, it gets uh, okay. It gets dicey. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I mean. Um, Okay, so uh, Marv Albert. Mar Marv Albert's, uh, you know, run uh, doing basketball games on television is over. Uh, he's going to, you know, he's reached the end of his career. I think he's 80 years old. Um, and uh, there was some unhappiness about whether there was sufficient tribute to Marv. And so they ramped that up a little bit uh, this weekend. It was announced last week. And there was an interesting conversation about the significance of Marv Albert. Marv Albert's, you know, longtime sportscaster. Uh, and you're familiar with the team that does the NBA games and the, the three guys. Who, yes, I am. Yes, they're good. Right? I only tune in for the for uh, you know, halftime talk. Right. Charles Barkley, you know, uh, Kenny Smith, Kenny the Jet Smith, who comes right. across as the sage, and Shaquille O'Neal comes off as a little bit of a clown. But, you know, he's got something to say. In any event, so they, they're asked to speak about Marv Albert. And what's interesting to me is Barkley and O'Neill say, well, Marv Albert's a very important guy, very exciting just to talk to Marv Albert because Marv Albert validated who we were. I've been watching games for years and Marv Albert was doing the games and he was talking about other players, historical players like Michael Jordan or Dominique Wilkins or whatever it was. You know, then he was saying my name. I felt that I had you know, reached the pantheon because Marv Albert 
you know, was the litmus test that I was important. Well, that's fine. But those of us who didn't play in the NBA don't really draw too much from that. But Kenny Smith actually put his finger on it. And he said, you know, I grew up in New York. And if you were in New York, the voice of all the sports was Marv Albert. He did the, the Rangers and the Knicks. But the thing to keep in mind is he was doing it on the radio. Because certainly hockey and even basketball was not on television that much there. So if you grew up a Knicks fan... You were listening to Marv Albert on the radio, and that's where you develop a relationship with a sportscaster because he is setting the scene and covering all aspects of the event and bringing you in, and you remember that sportscast for the rest of your life. And Kenny Smith says, I remember running around the house, listening to Marv Albert describe what the Knicks were doing, screaming with joy, crying with pain, but everything hinged on what Marv Albert had to say in the way he said it. He said, that's why Marv Albert was important. That was my relationship with Marv Albert. And I think that's right. And I think the idea of showing these, you know, television clips and saying, oh, the great dunk by Michael Jordan, that doesn't mean anything. But, the, you know, the radio broadcast in which we all would sit in dark rooms and try to imagine things based on what Albert and people before him, like Marty Glickman, had to say, that really connected. And that's what was important. So, in any event, uh, I thought that was interesting. Okay. All right, get ready to travel. Yeah. I mean, we're invited to a wedding. In Italy. In Italy. Yeah. We're trying to get our act together to go. Yeah. Uh, not not imminent, but... Close uh, enough. You know, in the fall. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, you know, a lot of articles about, uh, you know, tourist spots, tourist locations uh, starting back up again, including... Um, an article this week about the shops along the Ponte Vecchio. Yes, which the are... old bridge. Okay, um, and uh, it's Florence. It's in Florence, Firenze, as you like to say. Um, and uh, the article here says Florence's Renaissance past is most vividly evident on the Ponte Vecchio. Right. Its cobblestone thoroughfare is lined with forty-eight pocket-sized jewelry storefronts. Uh, they didn't always, uh, they weren't always jewelry stores, okay? The bridge was built in about 13, 1300s, and uh, it just had normal stores, yeah. normal stores, butchers, you know, fishmongers. The things have you changed can imagine, since the 1300s. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the smells, etc. Yeah. However, at a certain point, uh, when the new PT Palace is built, and uh, the um, Medici want to be able to... Um, travel between the Uffizi on one side of the river and the Pitti Palace on the other. Uh, Vasari designs a, kind of a, I don't know, almost like a tunnel, uh, a corridor, um, so that they can get uh, across um, without going out into the streets. Mm -hmm. And uh, they didn't like the smell yeah. um, of all these businesses. So a decree went out that it could only be, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's like the wildlife uh, overpasses and underpasses. It's the same idea. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's kind of an over underpass. Yeah. Um, for uh, you know the uh, wealthy, um, and so anyway, so now it's all uh, jewelry dealers. Well, leather goods too. No, it's all jewelry. Is it really? Oh, it's they, all they pushed jewelry. out the leather goods? No, yeah. And, uh, you know, Florence is famous for its goldsmiths. Yeah. Nespa, some of the great uh, artists started out as goldsmiths. Donatello, Brunelleschi, Ghiberti. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, it's a key artifact. It's, uh, you know, and it's still 
there's still wonderful um, jewelry being crafted, not on the bridge. Okay, they have uh, you know workshops mm-hmm. elsewhere. They sell on the bridge. Oh but, sure, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't anyway, expect. so they're all anxious to come back, and they understand that it's not going to start up real quick. That uh, you know they hope for you know the really um, committed. Yeah. Uh, appreciate. Well, they took, they they clearly took a beating during the pandemic. I mean, jeez. Yeah, I've never bought anything on the Pontevecchio. Yeah, but but I thought we bought my leather briefcase there. Is that, is that not on the no, Pontevecchio? No, we did not buy it on the Pontevecchio. No? no. Okay. No. But it was in Florence. Florence. In Florence, yes. Forense, as Firenze. you like to call it. Uh, so the Times, uh, this, this is the last thing we're going to cover. And the uh, Times wrote well, an article. We were talking about entertainment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're, you're well, going to let me say. There oh, was yes. A, you, you, you know. Go ahead. An article in the New York Times, not ready to leave the house. Well, I am ready to leave the house, but yeah. I'm always looking for. Uh, fun things to stream. Yeah. Okay. And yes, I. Ooh, we're getting closer and closer to Lupin time. This Season week two or is so. coming. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, so the Times mentions a few things you could be looking forward to uh, this summer, um, including Loki. Yeah, I don't know why you're excited about that. Well, you know, I, you know, I, I do like... Um, That's Marvel Universe, honey. That Asgardian yeah. trickster, uh, you know. Um, Tom Huddleston. Uh, with yeah. Tom Hiddleston. Hiddleston. Okay. Hiddleston. Yeah. Uh, and so, I like that character. He played... Okay. Didn't he play that character in Thor, right? In yeah, Thor Ragnarok, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we'll see if I actually watch it. Um, also, they mention... Um, the, the final season of Bosch. I've never watched Bosch, but I keep hearing about it. Yeah, we can it's, look into that. They call it the most satisfying old school cop show. Mm. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So maybe that. Also, how about The Chair? Okay. Um, a low-key romantic academic comedy set in an Ivyish university. All right. The Game of Thrones duo... David Benioff and D.B. Weiss are executive producers, okay? Um, Amanda Peet, the actress, is the showrunner and writer, right? right? And it stars your friend and mine, Sandra O. Oh. Okay. You know, yeah, so that might be all right. It, it sounds interesting. Also, something else that might be fun. Yeah. Only Murders in the Building. Okay. This is the Martin Short. Uh, Martin Short. Steve, Mor- I, Steve you know, Martin. I would take a look takes at that. Takes place on the Upper West Side, also with Selena Gomez. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I don't know enough about Selena okay. Gomez to comment. It says but. here, um, Steve Martin and Martin Short star in a TV series, and if that doesn't make you want to check it out, well, okay, maybe that just means you're over sixty. Yeah. Uh, under sixty. <laughs> under sixty, I think. Doesn't if you, you don't want to check it out, that means you're under sixty. Under sixty. Yeah, sorry. I blew that. That's sorry. all right. It's not uh, okay. You're on point. Uh, yeah. Look, I don't know. Is it too cute? You think? I will say I've seen. It sounds really too cute. You know, Martin. But you know, sometimes you need a little too cute. Yeah. Okay. That's. I thought we rely on Hazi for that. But uh, in any event, uh, I will, I have you know Martin Short and um, uh, Steve Martin have been doing a show together, live show together for some months. So uh, that's clearly what this comes out of. And look, they're both great. Uh, all right. So now the final point. There was an article in the Times called uh, an op-ed. Even James Bond needs protection by a fellow named John Logan, who's uh, a director and writer, I suppose. And um, 
what he's talking about is the Amazon acquisition of MGM. And what he's railing about really is the fact that uh, when you have uh, corporate types take over a creative organization like MGM, the creative process is potentially undermined. Everything, I'm reading little paraphrases, everything gets watered down to the most easily consumable version of itself. There are no more rough edges or flights of cinematic madness. The fire and passion are gradually drained away. And his example of what's in danger is James Bond. He said, you know, James Bond, you know, uh, could be subject to this kind of watering down, this kind of corporate decision-making, and it will lose, you know, the magic that's associated with that character in that series. And I'm saying to myself, James Bond, uh, really? Um, uh, you know, that's not high art. Is that what we're worried about, James Bond? And isn't this idea of the corporate guys taking over, isn't that like old news? People have been worrying about that for a long time. And then by coincidence, total coincidence, there's an obituary of a fellow named Jerome Hellman, who is the producer of uh, Midnight Cowboy and uh, Coming Home. And, uh, you know, impressive, serious movies, challenging movies, um, and they ask him in the, there's a quote in the course of uh, this obituary. And they say, well, you know, you had something going for you because you had such success. Midnight Cowboy was best picture coming home at a big audience. I guess you could get whatever you want made. And uh, he said, that's not true. The studios, he said, and this is in 1982, were now run by business types who needed every film to be a blockbuster. Uh, all that my success has won me, he said, is the luxury of access to top executives, but that doesn't mean I can get creative films made. It's exactly the same issue that's being voiced about James Bond today. That was in 1982, and here's the funny thing about it. When Holman's talking about people don't want to make my films, they want to make blockbusters, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about James Bond. So, uh, you know, what goes around comes around. Um, I wouldn't worry about it. It's not like the James Bond stuff. I like the James Bond film. They're fun. I'm looking forward to the next one, but it's not exactly high art. I think that, uh, you know, we'll all survive with Amazon or anybody acquiring uh, the movie studio. The corporate types have been running those movie studios for a long time. Uh, and so I think that's all we've got for this week. That's right. So this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. Tamson and Dan read the paper. See you again. We gotta go play with the baby. Yes.